0: you're listening to the broadway podcast network good evening ladies and gentlemen welcome to the fabulous feinstein's 54 below before we get started this evening just a polite reminder please take this moment to silence your cell phones also there is no flash photography please please welcome crystalline lloyd <laughs> Welcome to the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast, where we take you behind the scenes at Broadway's Supper Club. My name is Kevin Ferguson. I'm an assistant programming director. And today, our guest is a Grammy, Emmy award winning actress, writer, and director. She originated the role of Alana Beck in the hit Broadway production of Dear Evan Hansen. Her other New York credits include Little Women at Primary Stages, Invisible Thread at Second Stage Theater, Heather's The Musical at New World Stages. Film credits, TV credits, Madam Secretary, ER, and the Bold and the Beautiful. I mean, give it up for Crystalline Lloyd. Crystalline, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. This is so exciting. Is. You are so fabulous, and I am such a big fan of yours, so I'm just really excited to sit here and have some time with you.
1: Thanks for having me. I always love getting to connect with people in our industry and just build community. So thank you.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, let's get right into it. I got a slew of questions for you. I'm sure that people want to know what's going on in Crystalline's life, what the show's going to give. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So since it's been so long, since we've been able to perform, first question, how does it feel? We're back into it. How are you feeling?
1: I feel good as far as singer... You had a long time to rest your voice. (laughs)
0: Right.
1: So obviously that feels rested. I feel also a bit of conflict, as I'm sure a number of people in the industry do, just because it's been such a tumultuous year and it's uprooted so many weeds and it's opened up so many closets and a lot of skeletons. And I know a lot of people have had extreme responses to it. So I imagine that like me, Some people might feel a little triggered walking into a rehearsal room at 42nd Street Studios or Open Jars. So I'm going back into rehearsals in about a month or two. So I think I'll have more context around that question, like in the answer when that happens. But as far as putting this show together, it's felt brand new because I've never done anything like this in New York. And the show that I did in LA about 10 years ago, I scrapped everything because so much has happened in 10 years.
0: Yes. And the show, of course, you're talking about is Confessions of a Token Black Girl, which I love that title. Thank you. I feel like I can relate to it. Though I'm not a black girl, I feel like what that title is talking about. Talk more about how you were able to figure out a set list for a show with that title. I
1: know, right? (laughs) It's so tricky to pick out songs because. Your impulse as a singer is to go to your book. And your impulse is also to gravitate towards musical theater music. And then I grew up listening to top hits by the time I was in middle school, high school. But before that, R&B, Luther Vandross, Lionel Richie, that was my first concert that I ever went to. Wow. So I started to go back to those roots and I was like, you need to debut the music you've written.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I started
1: writing music about seven or eight years ago in Los Angeles. I was working on a soap opera and I had so much time on my hands. And I was also working in a church as a worship pastor, administrative, whatever you want to call it. And I had been playing guitar since I was 17. And so I started writing music as a way to heal and as a way to express my love for God because, you know, I was in the church and. The next thing I knew, I was just writing songs. So I decided to debut them.
0: So, okay, so it's going to be a lot of original music, like all original music or?
1: No, no, there will definitely be some covers.
0: Okay, a lot, but a lot of it will be (laughs) originals.
1: Yeah, it's very exciting. I spent the weekend in Los Angeles with my music director working through arrangements and it just got us so excited.
0: What's your songwriting process? Do you have one? Do you have any songwriter influences that you like to pull from?
1: When I started writing music, I was listening to a lot of John Mayer and Jason Mraz and Justin Zuko and Ingrid Michaelson. It was a lot of specifically white artists. And (laughs) (laughs) I was heavily influenced by Christian contemporary music as well. And as I've gotten older and my music taste has (laughs) expanded, I find that the process really originates from self-reflection and writing. Back in the day, I would journal um, in my quiet times as a Christian, and a lot of the lyrics came from the context of those journals. And so I found that it was a way to heal also after ending relationships or navigating self-discovery and a lot of that, that's how it comes out for my songwriting is from the context of my journals and the context of my notes that you write on your phone. And that's where it all starts. And I'll get a melody in my head and I'll run to my phone and I'll sing it in the phone, even if it's just like, da, 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 da. you know what I mean? And I found that when I would sit down with my guitar that would start to come out and I would go to my writing. So it's a bit all over the place, but there is a structure to it in my brain. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Art is a little bit of mayhem sometimes, but we always get there. That is so (laughs) fabulous. When you write these songs, are they always solo songs? Do you have dream duets in mind that you would love to partner with? You have voices that you're like, I would love to hear this voice singing that song, or are they always for you?
1: They're not always for me. And I found that putting the show together, I asked myself, I said, are you writing a musical? And I was like, I think, girl, I think you're (laughs) writing a musical. So I don't always think of songs for me. I've written songs. (laughs) I remember one song I wrote was me wanting to hear something from someone and imagining how they would say it to me based on who they are. And I was like, "Oh, you're writing? Yeah, you're writing a musical. So that, <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah. is how I'm...
0: musicals happen. <laughs> this is how
1: they happen. <laughs> Thanks for asking that question. So no one, no one's ever asked yeah. that. Yeah.
0: No, I feel like it's so important when you're a songwriter, you get to create these worlds, and they don't always have to be worlds that reflect you. You can make these characters, and next thing you know, they're singing to each other. There's a storyline. There's an intermission. Absolutely. (laughs) Next thing you know, you got a musical. That's so dope. What does the sound usually sound like? Is it really pulling from that contemporary Christian sound? You feel?
1: I do. I found that even when working with my MD, there was a lot of praise breaks, (laughs) praise moments. Yes.
0: Yes. So I was like,
1: wow. And when I first started learning guitar, it was because I was a high schooler who's doing praise and worship, and So those chords are very embedded in the makeup of who I am. Dear Evan Hansen, that is something that translated to me when I heard the music for the first time. I looked at Justin and I said, I'm sorry, this is a praise and worship song. And he was like, yeah, I was like, yeah. And it turns out Justin has uh, Christian backgrounds. His dad's a pastor and that he was singing praise and worship in his church as well. So. It does have that sound to it. There's also a lot of pop (laughs) in what I write, because like I told you, I was a top hits person.
0: Me too. You can't go wrong. They're the top hits for a reason. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly. But my music has expanded and my taste for it has also expanded. And that's also due to my community and the people that I surround myself with.
0: Yeah. Now, you say community. Where are you from? Where is originally before New York?
1: Well, before New York, I was living in Los Angeles for about seven years, and that's where I did the soap opera. And before that, I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at Carnegie Mellon. So I did four years of school in Pittsburgh. And before that, I grew up in Spring, Texas, which is about 45 minutes outside of Houston.
0: Wow. So much. Carnegie Mellon how was that experience? So You just you're going to just graze over. Yeah, and then there was a moment where I went to Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's an amazing school. It is
1: an amazing school. I think I feel like I have more of a language for that experience now at this point in my life. It was a tad traumatizing to attend a predominantly white institution and to feel as though they just didn't know what to do with me. And Oh, I remember at one point we sat around in this business class that they had senior year, and people are giving you your industry types. And mine were Whoopi Goldberg, Fantasia, and Regina Taylor. Those are
0: so very different people.
1: <laughs> so different. <laughs> They're I was like,
0: all very different people. It's
1: like, okay, great. I'll take that and do what with it. That experience in that four years alone is a show in and of itself. It was filled with a lot of really beautiful moments where I was able to do things I hadn't done before. But it was also really a challenge because I was not accepted as a, a singer musical theater major. And so I had to petition and beg my classmates to let me take their musical theater classes with them. And that created animosity and jealousy. And then I was bullied for four years by a classmate excessively. And it was a tough process. So every time I talk about it, it really is a love-hate relationship because so much is reconciled even with that, with the bully and with the women that I've walked away with in my life from that class. Like I still spend time with them to this day and know their children and their families. So it brought a lot of joy and a lot of growth for I think anyone who attends college can attest to that. <laughs> it's a tumultuous four years.
0: <laughs> Definitely. So how do you feel about the next generation going into these theater programs? Is there something you would really wanted someone to say to you before you chose that program?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. I- <laughs> I have students that I've taught since then and their parents, you know, when they ask me about Carnegie Mellon or about going to a conservatory, I said, don't for the first year. I said, take a year off, travel, join some organization where you can give back because there's something about leaving an institution and getting a year of freedom away from institutions that really helps you develop more of a sense of who you are in the world. So that by the time you get to the school, they're trying to put you in some sort of box so they can showcase you your senior year. And it's tricky. You have young kids who don't really know who they are. But I feel like something about this generation is much more self-realized than my generation was. And something much more self-actualized about them. They have conversations in a language for those conversations that I didn't have growing up. And I think it's due in part to the internet. I think it's having so much access to so much real estate (laughs) in the world. So I do always say, take a year off. I think it's beneficial. And I was like, and it'll still be there. If they wanted you now, they will want you then.
0: That's always my advice. Yeah, because you can't jump into it so quickly, especially when you're young. That's a big step. No rush. It'll always be there. And New York will definitely always be there for the ones who want to rush through school so they can get to New York. Mm -mm. If 2020 didn't teach anything, New York is not going anywhere. It's not going
1: nowhere. Look.
0: (laughs) We still here. That's awesome, though. The kids definitely got to hear that. It's no pressure. Don't rush into it. It's a big step and it's going to really be a foundation for you moving forward in your career life. Take your time and do a lot of research on these schools and these programs.
1: Honey, and contact people, even like people who want to attend Carnegie Mellon. Please hit me up on my Instagram. I will DM back because I'm happy to talk about my experience. I'm sure so much has changed since then in many an institution, but it's worth finding out from the alum their experience because a lot of times those teachers are still there.
0: Yeah. And whoever that bully was, we're going to block them.
1: No, we don't. Like don't. Them. Whoever was bullying
0: you. <laughs> we, how how dare, dare you bully?
1: Look, we're all 18 Lord. terrified. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're showing up right. to everyone being good. That's another thing you show up to your conservatory programs and you're no longer a big fish in a small pond. So God bless a bully.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keeps you grounded. Right after Carnegie, you were able to head over to LA and have that artist journey in Los Angeles. Do you feel any drastic differences between the artist journey in LA versus the artist journey in New York?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, film and television is just such a larger monster out there. And because of that, it affects the community and the people who are in the city. New York is very theater based. So it does affect the people that you're an acting class with, because that's how I found my community in L.A. was by taking acting classes and obviously attending churches. But I find that in New York, you have so much access to Running into people with cabarets and the 54 Below shows and the 29 hour readings and the workshops here and the workshops there and in L.A., the theater scene happens and you do stuff like that. But mostly networking is going out to places and going to events because you're not running into people on the streets in front of Pearl or Ripley
0: Greer. Just running into people on the streets. Because you can't. You have a car. In LA, you're in your car. You have your own little separate moment, so it's harder to just run into people or just make a quick community happen so quickly in the cabaret space. Yeah, I totally understand that. I feel like it's fabulous, though. Sorry, I use the word so many times; it's my favorite word ever.
1: It's a great word. I also feel like <laughs> LA is also a little bit ahead of Broadway in terms of their appetite for welcoming and watering. Diversity. I find that Hollywood right now feels as though the doors are really, really open for women of color, for men of color. And I feel like there is a desire to, oh, yes, absolutely. Number one on the call sheet, we absolutely have a black hairstylist and makeup artist. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. And I find that New York is still a bit behind and things like that. Not that LA is like, (laughs) some token example (laughs) to like put on a pedestal. But I do find that for what it's worth, there's a bit of a delay here in New York in fostering and nurturing your artists of color.
0: Yeah. And I wonder how that happens. A lot of people say theater and live theater is such a real and raw experience. To tap into that and to understand the theater, you got to have a really open mind and be really smart. So it's surprising, in my opinion, to hear the theater world being a little behind the TV world in aspects of diversity and inclusion.
1: This goes to show you, you don't have to be the most intelligent person in the room to be (laughs) anti-racist. It isn't always about academia or intelligence. I like what Michaela Coel says. She's like, it's just about consideration and thinking of others <laughs> but hollywood is like putting money in and their investment is very important to them and it's very clear so i think that's also something that i'm looking at in new york is you don't really want to put money into black artists
0: mm-hmm. speak on it
1: why would we want to stay <laughs> and i don't know if that is helpful observation but that's what i've been noticing and feeling in my soul lately.
0: Yes, it definitely needs to be a little bit more representation across the board, everywhere behind the scenes and on the stage, behind the table, all of it. Yeah. I do feel a shift happening, but like you said, it could be greater. It could be a greater shift happening. For sure. and hopefully we're just in the beginning days of a new wave happening on Broadway. I think yeah. we are. I really do. Mm-hmm. While you were out there in L.A., though, let's talk about this soap opera that you keep mentioning. It's not just a soap opera. It's The Bold and the Beautiful. What was that experience like? That
1: is an iconic show. It is. It was on for 25 years, and I hadn't seen it before. And I went in for an audition for a co-star. She was supposed to be a prostitute. And I got a call back, and the material had shifted a bit, and she was a prostitute with more of a story. And then... (laughs) I met with the producer on my third audition, the executive producer of the show. And he was like, you're such a lovely actress. Why have I never heard of you? And I had just gotten back from doing a year overseas as a missionary. And I told him I graduated college two years ago and I took a year off to do that. And so he wanted to know all about that. And when I got back from that, I had started volunteering in Skid Row on a weekly basis. And so I was telling him about that. My character quickly went from (laughs) a prostitute on the streets to a young woman living on the streets. There's a little conflict in this, but she was a young black woman (laughs) living on the streets. And this older white woman takes her in and buys her a coffee shop. And it was great because I was working in homeless shelters in Skid Row. So I had relationships with the people connected to them. And the executive producer decided to shoot on location at the homeless shelters in Skid Row. And he ended up casting some men and women who were homeless and living in the shelters who always wanted to be actors. And they played themselves on the soap opera. But anytime my character worked, they worked. So I take a lot of pride in that opportunity, even though it still has undertones of problematic themes, underwriting it with white saviorism. I still take a lot of pride in it because it gave people jobs, it gave people a place to find pride in themselves as human beings. And one of them was supporting a family of three kids. And this job gave him paychecks and one of the other women got an agent. And that is
0: amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah.
1: Like that part is that part brings me a lot of joy. So Bolden the Beautiful was three years and I had a great time. It was in my 20s and I was partying with young Hollywood people. And it was a great time. I loved working on the show and with my
0: castmates. I'm still friends
1: with them. So it was great.
0: Working in L.A., I'm sure you see a lot of celebrities. Was there one moment where you were just like, oh, that is a celebrity? Like, were you so stuck by someone or were you cool the whole time?
1: That's a great question. I don't normally get starstruck. I'm trying to think, was there a moment in L.A. that I gagged? Was there a (laughs) gag moment? I worked with Angela Bassett. That was pretty gag worthy.
0: I'm pretty sure I would be gagging yeah. the whole time. I played her niece.
1: I played her niece yeah. on ER. And so it was gag worthy when I
0: met her. Oh, yeah. the Angela. That's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So you're on Bold and Beautiful. You're hanging out with Angela Bassett. Yes. You, Best, what drew you? Yeah. What drew you to New York? How did you get pulled all the way to this side of the country?
1: Well, my agents had always teased about New York and wanted to know how I felt because I sing. And even on the soap opera, they utilize that. And like I sing music on the soap. And so I said, I'm down to go to New York, but I have to have a job. I'm not going there without a job. And I auditioned for this musical called Heathers that they were doing in L.A. like a version of to like workshop it. It turned out to be a full run of a show, by the way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I ended up originating (laughs) the role of Heather Duke. Well, not fully. I did it in that workshop and then they took it to New York. And I had been working on a musical called Witness Uganda for about four years before I started that show. And it was going to A.R.T. in Boston at the exact same time that Heather's was going to be off-Broadway. So I had to make a decision and I chose (laughs) Witness Uganda. And probably a couple weeks after our run in Boston ended, I got a call from Andy Fickman, who's the director of Heathers. And he was like, do you want your role? Because the girl playing it is going to go. Her name is Alice Lee. She was leaving to do a TV show at all. And I was like, Sure, I needed a reason to move to New York and my time on the soap. I had just finished my contract and wasn't going back. So it was perfect timing. And that show was my reason for coming out to New York. And then my reason for staying was Witness Uganda.
0: Oh, I love Witness Uganda. I was watching that journey from the beginning. I heard it a bit on Twitter and I just was following any bit of it I could the whole way through. So that's so awesome. And then, of course, Heather's is just so fierce. I love the candy store song. I think (laughs) I can hear that over and over and over again. So so I think, yeah, I love Heathers. But after Heathers, after Witness Uganda, a little show called Dear Evan Hansen came into your life. That's right. Did that feel different than the other stage productions you booked? Did anything feel different?
1: No, I had never heard of it. I didn't know anything about the show. Keep in mind, I had just moved to to New York. Probably when did I book that? I think I booked it my first like my first year. So I just didn't know anyone or really anything about it. I was in the middle of doing Witness Uganda and I noticed that a number of us were going in for it. And so when I booked it, I needed to read the script. And so I read the script and I just didn't know how they were going to make this a musical. I was like, "Wait a second. <laughs> this is a crazy plot line." how am I not going to want this little boy to get whooped at the end of the show? And then, you know, of course, Rachel Bay Jones's character comes in and sings so big, so small. And you're like, oh yeah, a mother's love, but it didn't feel different. It just felt like another opportunity to help develop a musical, which I was familiar with. I actually didn't take it right away. I don't think my agent said that, you know, she's not interested. My agents were like, "Uh, let's talk about it. Because I was like, I don't (laughs) know Michael Greif. Yeah. We know from my friend Griffin Matthews video that he put up on the internet earlier last year, Invisible Threat at Second Stage was a tad bit stressful. And I was very cognizant about who I was going to work with moving forward as far as creatives, because that makes a huge difference in your experience with a show. So I had never worked with Michael Greif. And I was at a point in my career where I was like, my relationship with my director is very important to me. And I got on the phone with him and I asked him a couple of questions and I had some inquiries just about the show. And I was very aware of the fact that they had no other actors of color. So I was very aware of the fact that I was a token and I needed to know what their intentions were for the show because I was like, I have to do this eight times a week. <laughs> so I need to know if this is something I can commit to, and then eventually it was like, yes, I'll take the job because my agent was like, I think this is going to be a hit. He was like, Chris I really feel like this is going to be a hit, and I was like, okay. So I took it, and going into rehearsals, it was very fast because the cast had been together already for about four and a half years working on this show, so they had synergy. They had this cohesive, like they had relationships with each other, and I was this new person. Michael Greif had me in rehearsals two hours before rehearsal would start, I had my own just to get the words and the show in my mouth and my body. I had to catch up because Ben talks very fast. Evan talks very fast. So Alana talks very fast. And so all of that was very essential to helping me get into the mode of the show and the tone of it and the feel. And trying to get cohesive with the other actors, but it didn't feel different in the beginning. It didn't. It didn't feel different at all.
0: Wow. And that's awesome. It came through with such a force, that show. I just expected with it being so big that you would have felt that, but with you coming in so early, you were able to just be with it while it was growing. How did that feel when the fans came through?
1: I had just never been a part of anything like that. And yeah. I have to be honest. I'm a bit of a grandma. I wanted to do Broadway <laughs> because you're not on a tabloid magazine cover. People don't care about what you wear, dress, eat, or even say most of the time. It's Broadway. So it was a little overwhelming.
0: I felt the fandom of Dear <laughs> yes. Evan Hansen was very strong during those days of first opening and uh, till, till the end. And now yes. with it getting even bigger... I just feel like it is definitely a force, but the message of that show, anybody can relate to and the songs and the singers singing the songs. It is just, (laughs) uh, I'm so emotional. Just thinking about it. (laughs) That show is so good.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you
0: love it. And now 54 Below solo show. We're bringing it back. Will there be any hints of a Heather reference or a Dare Hansen reference in your 54 Below show? Of course. Or, OK, OK, OK. Yeah, I didn't of know. course.
1: There's no way you can have that title and not talk about those experiences.
0: Yeah. Any yeah. other roles that you would dream to play or dream stories to tell in your writing or any story on your heart that you think needs to be a musical?
1: Well, I definitely am inspired. This is not about me, but there's a director named Whitney White, and I just saw an installation that she had at the Mercury store in Brooklyn, and she's a Black director, and she's creating a musical about a Black woman and her experience with mental health therapy and Christianity and religion. and. I'm so fascinated by that because it's so relevant to who I am. So even in the midst of writing the show for 54 Below, I found myself, like I said, I think I'm writing. A musical. So I think to answer that, I might be creating my own dream roles at this point.
0: <laughs> yes. I <laughs> love you know, that.
1: Yeah. I ha, You know, I have some other stuff that I'm writing. I'm co-writing something with a friend of mine that's about a Black family in the 1800s who is affluent and wealthy at the dawn of the abolitionist movement. And so
0: I think I'm writing my dream roles right now. That's amazing. I cannot wait to see them. I think that is so awesome. More people need to be writing their own dream roles. I think a lot of people out there because of these universities may be chasing certain roles that they think is their dream role, when in reality, their artistry could be expressed so much bigger in an original role that they write for themselves. And that's the point of Token Black Girl. We're so much more than
1: that. And I'm really grateful that so early on in my career, I said no to it. I said no in a way that gave me power because I said, if you're going to hire me as that role, after the couple of experiences that I had, I was like, I have opinions. (laughs) I have opinions. And it got to a point where it was like the roles I was taking were tokens and directors were listening to me. And I think that's what nurtured me into a directing career because I had directors who said she's more than a token. I actually think we can build this show around her more. And I'm very grateful for that. So as much as my show will be confessions and a little bit of like tea, it's also going to be about like, I need love and joy to exist in this show as well and gratitude, because I can't get up there and sing a song where all I do is drag white people. You know what I mean? I just can't do a whole show about the trauma. So I think the confessions, I think whoever gets to see this is really going to enjoy it because it's me talking about my tokenism in my proximity to whiteness my entire life. And if you're on my Instagram up until the show, you're going to get some really cool like little nuggets about that. So go ahead and follow my Instagram because that is where I'm allowing some of the process of this show to live. And I think it's actually good context to have before coming to see it.
0: Let the folks know what that Instagram handle is.
1: Oh, you could just follow me at Crystal and Lloyd. That's it.
0: Yes, boom. That's it. Easy. Wow, Crystal this has been so fun chatting with you. This is so. Eye opening. I think it's going to be ear opening for everyone listening along, especially any young university, college theater kid, or anyone, any artist trying to know if LA or New York is their city. You're just such a soothing voice. And I feel like you come with so much wisdom about the entertainment industry and how to navigate through it as a person of color, specifically a black woman. And I think we have to put microphones in front of voices like this more often.
1: I think you're right. And I'm glad that you have this podcast and that you're able to let your own creativity live in this sphere and in this context. So I was glad you asked me to do
0: it. (laughs) We are really looking forward to your show, though. So Thank we need you. to grab those tickets. crystalline Lloyd, Confessions of a Token Black Girl. This is September 2nd and 3rd, y'all, at Feinstein's 54 Below, 945 p.m. Get your tickets. The box office is open. They're always taking calls. The website is open, always moving forward. Krystalyn, is there anything else you want to tell the folks about your show or leave them with a little bit of encouragement?
1: Y'all just be good to yourselves. Be kind to yourselves and love yourself at every little marker moment in your process as a human being and as an artist. You got to find a way to be able to look in the past and have love and grace for that person. Because moving forward, we got a lot of work to do. And we're going to need some healed souls. So be good to yourself.
0: All right, folks. Well, you heard it here first. Crystalline Lloyd, Confessions of a Token Black Girl. One more time, September 2nd and 3rd, 945 at Feinstein's 54 Below. Thanks, Crystalline.
1: You're welcome. You've been listening to the Find Science 54 Below podcast, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.